evening, brethren and sisters and young people. Welcome along to a further consideration in our series on Ecclesiastes. Tonight we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. <clears throat> so we'll open our Bible class with the singing of hymn number 354, after which we remain standing for a word of prayer. O blessed are the eyes that see the living way to grasp the glorious prize of everlasting day. Hymn 354. Our reading of introduction tonight is to be taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we'll ask our brother Brian if he can lead us in that reading. Reading together from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men, as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the foolish walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me, and why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. 
Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me, and who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom, and in knowledge, and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity, and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat? Well, who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. We'll call upon our brother Neville then to lead us in his second consideration of the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Brother David, and good evening, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters and our dear young people. Well, this evening, brothers, sisters, and young people, we, we really come to the beginning of Solomon's quest proper, don't we? Because we're going to commence where we left off last week in chapter 1 and verse 12, where Solomon is now going to investigate what we described as the central theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to investigate that this week at least, up until the end of chapter 2, by personal experience. He's going to experiment personally and practically with some of the issues of life that he might obtain for himself some ultimate form of fulfillment. You remember we described last week the, the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes was the quest for the greatest good. And Solomon is going to systematically now and intelligently set about examining every aspect of life in order that he should find out what a man should do without God to find something of lasting value. Not that Solomon's an atheist, of course, but to prove the point of the importance of God in our lives, he begins to explain the problems of life by ignoring God, at least at the start of the book of Ecclesiastes. What can a man make of himself, then, by his own development? that has any lasting fulfillment or lasting benefit whilst living life as an end in itself. In our last class, as we explained, we, we consider the introductory verses of chapter 1, which, which really outlined, I suppose here, the, the quest itself, explained some of the problems that Solomon had seen about him and that he proposed to deal with 
as he now started to answer some of the major issues of life. And this is where we are this evening, of course. The first major experiment Solomon undertakes to answer the quest, to solve the problem of, of man's satisfaction, of man's fulfillment, which he's going to do. And he's going to test every avenue of life, as we said. You look at chapter 2, verse 10. He's very, very committed to, this, to, to the, the solution of this problem, you see. As we read in verse 10, Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. The NIV says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He's going to examine everything he possibly can, that he might see what possible good there is in life, that he might attain some sort of lasting fulfillment. Whilst he's committed to the experiment, however, you'll notice the the last words of of verse 9, just a little bit above at the top of your page. Whilst he's doing this, he never ever becomes so submerged in his experiment that he loses control, at least not at this stage of the experiment. Also, he says, at the end of verse 9, my wisdom remained with me. This is, you see, this is going to be an objective experiment. This is not just a... A wander off into luxury and extravagance. This is an experiment. He wants answers from the experiment. So, of course, he's got to analyze it objectively to see just what he finds as he withholds nothing from his eyes or from his heart. Well, then, this is the first experiment. This is the quest now pursued from the point of view of personal experience. First 12 verses of chapter 1 are the title, of course, and the explanation of what the problem of the quest is all about. When we come to verse 12, Solomon now starts to explain the various methods of personal experience which he's going to undergo to answer this quest. Now, look, I've got overheads to hand out at the end, so you don't need to copy these down if you don't wish to. But you can see we're going to experiment now with wisdom, with pleasure, with indulgence, with creativity, with power, with wealth. And with labour. We're going to experiment with all of those things this evening uh, through the eyes of Solomon. And we're going to realise that wisdom really isn't the answer. Wisdom has a certain value, but it's not the answer Solomon begins to think it was. And similarly with labour. There really isn't the satisfaction in labour. There is some satisfaction, but there isn't the satisfaction in labour that Solomon thought there might be when he commenced this quest. And so he draws some very powerful conclusions at the end of the chapter about what is and isn't right and the benefits that man can expect from life if he lives it through the narrow frame of reference that Solomon begins with in the first couple of chapters of this book. So that's our, that's our structure really for the evening. And you'll see that he speaks about the vanity of wisdom here because he has experimented with wisdom here. He speaks about the vanity of labour here because he's experimented labour of various forms here. So he answers everything he tries and analyses it as he says my wisdom remaining with me in chapter 2 verse 9. He actually does what he says he wanted to do and looks at everything objectively without being taken away with perhaps the enjoyment or the pleasure per se of the quest itself. Well let's begin then in chapter 1 and verse 12 because this is the start of the quest now proper. I, the preacher, he says, 
was king, of, king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, of course, that's just a restatement of chapter 1, verse 1, in many ways, isn't it? Because he says many of the very same words there. But you see, this is the beginning of the quest. This is the formal beginning now, and he's approaching the quest as a king, with all the time, with all the opportunities, with all the resources that that implies. Which, of course, as we explained last week, is very credible for anybody else who thought they might want to pursue this quest themselves. They couldn't do it better. He's going to do this better than any of us ever might expect to be able to do. And the first resource that Solomon brings to bear upon the problem that he's going to solve is, of course, the resource of wisdom. In verse 16, he explains to us that he had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. This was Solomon's peculiar gift, wasn't it? This was what God had blessed him with. And I suppose it's where he began to solve most problems that might have come up in his life. He would apply the enormous intellect that he was blessed with to problems and start to unlock answers. So, of course, not surprisingly, that's where he begins to try and solve this problem, the problem of mankind. And so, therefore, in verse 13, it says, I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven, this sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I gave my heart to this problem, he says. Now when he says he gave his heart, brothers and sisters, he doesn't mean he approached the subject emotionally, as we might describe giving our heart to some subject. To the Hebrews, you see, the heart was the seat of intellect, whereas the bowels were the seat of emotion. So when he says I gave my heart to a problem, he means... I focused upon this problem with all the power of my intellect. And he had a brilliant mind, as we know. So he's now going to apply logic and thought to this problem, to the problems of life that he's described in the previous verses. And he says here in verse 13, that I'm going to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning these things. The NIV says, I'm going to study and to explore. The word seek, you see, means to examine deeply. And the word search out means to examine widely. So he's going to examine a vast breadth of subjects at considerable depth. He's going to, you can see he's going to look across the whole gambit of the pleasure that life affords man in what is going to be an exhaustive occupation over many years as he tries to unlock the pleasure of life, fulfillment in life. And the object of the, course, of the study was, as he says halfway through this verse, to answer the sore travail, as he describes it. The RSV says, This unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. The fact that man spends all his life looking for fulfillment in a world in which nothing is ever fulfilled. Where the sun rises and sets but never ever concludes its circuit. Where the wind blows this way and that way and never ever stops. Where the sea is never full. Where the eye, the ear is never satisfied. And man struggles and struggles for fulfillment and then dies. Unable to pass this experience on to the next generation. Because that generation has to therefore go and learn all the same lessons itself. Until it dies. And the third generation begins all over again. This unhappy business is the RSVC. This sore travail that God has created. And you notice, there's no doubt in Solomon's mind why things are like what they are. But to prove 
the purpose of God and the validity of becoming a Bible student, he has to begin to answer this quest, this quest without reference to God, as we'll see. Oh, says Solomon, this, must, this, this is a terrible problem. There must be a solution to this treadmill. And so in verse 14 he says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The NIV says, it is everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The RSV, vanity and a feeding upon wind. The word spirit here, of course, is the word ruach. It's the same word as the word wind in verses, or tw- that occurs twice in verse 6. The same phrase occurs in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 1. That Ephraim, the northern tribes of Israel, Ephraim feedeth upon wind and followeth after wind. Speaking, of course, of an attempt to attain the unattainable. That's what life's like, says Solomon in verse 14. You labour, you expend time, you expend money, you expend energy, you dream of satisfaction. Once I've achieved this or that, I won't have to do it anymore. Just one more promotion. Just one more overseas trip. Just one more coat of paint. Only to find that you really haven't solved anything at all. And the, the satisfaction you thought you were going to achieve never comes. It was never as good as what you thought it was going to be. It wasn't the solution it promised to be, you see. And as Solomon explained the problem, examined the problem, he found inconsistencies. Verse 15. Life's not fair. Some things don't happen the way they should. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting or lacking cannot be numbered. You know where the problem is, but you can't quantify it. You're missing some dimension. You, don't, you can see a problem, but you can't fix it. It's just beyond your grasp to be able to solve. Solomon knows, by the way, where the problem comes from because he describes in chapter 7 and verse 13, he describes it like this. Consider the work of God, he says, for who can make straight that which he has made crooked? In chapter 7 and verse 13. So there's no mistake in Solomon's mind why things are like what they are. This is God's sore travail. He has cre- he's created things like this, you see, which can't be fulfilled and a desire in the heart of man to fulfill them. And it's a terrible business, as Solomon describes it here. There's just no solution to some problems in life. And there's no solution, naturally speaking, to the fulfillment that man looks for in life. But that's what Solomon's trying to answer, you see. The solution, by the way, to the problem of verse 15 comes in the kingdom age. Because Isaiah 40 in verse 4 says, Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked, straight, the rough places plain, when the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. There's the solution to the crookedness in nature, in the food chain, in the curse upon the earth, in the nature of man, there's the solution to the crookedness of life. But it won't happen, of course, until Isaiah chapter 40. That's the divine answer. But even though Solomon knows God's behind it, he's committed to trying to solve the problem without God, at least in the first instance. And so he says in verse 16, Well, I commune with my own heart, saying, Lo, he says, I'm come to great estate. I've gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. 
Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. You see the agony that there must be in Solomon's mind? This is the most brilliant mind that had lived until that time. There must be a solution to this. How can I answer this problem? Why can I not answer this problem, he says. And he rolls through his own credentials and lists three credentials here in this verse, which he has, which no one else has. I've become great, he says. I'm famous, particularly for answering difficult questions. Everybody in the world comes to me to answer their difficult questions, and I answer them. I can't answer this question. I am the wisest man in history, in the history of Jerusalem. I have a divine blessing in this regard. If anybody can answer this question, I can, but I can't. You can see, you see the resting that he's got on this issue. Just applying wisdom to this problem. My experience of wisdom and of the knowledge of life is vast. But I'm missing something. Proverbs 9 and verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man. And he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. And Solomon's learning was like this, brothers and sisters, but he couldn't answer the problems that he was trying to answer by this quest, just at least by thinking about them. And so he says, well, perhaps the answer is not to be found in intellect. Perhaps perhaps I'm taking the problem too seriously. Perhaps really it's quite obvious. Verse 17, so he says, Well then I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. But I perceived that this also was vexation vexation of spirit. Madness and folly, he says. I tested both extremes. I applied a conscientious diligence to the problem and I applied recklessness. I pretended there was no problem. It got me nowhere. From the skillful application of knowledge and the, the mature decision that that provides to the senseless disregard of intelligence as if there was no problem and the wild and rash conclusions that it provides it seems by the way that the madness and the folly he talks about here it doesn't tell you in this verse what exactly he did to explore madness and folly but I think very possibly that the madness he refers to is in chapter 2 verse 2 and the folly he refers to is in chapter 2 verse 3 these are the kinds of things he tried, he tried to examine life through the, through the eyes of madness and folly, folly by. Because mad, madness occurs in verse 2 and folly occurs in verse The same words. Mad and foolish things he tried as a part of his quest. Both extremes. Distractions of pleasure for pleasure's sake. Vanity. Hopeless, he says. You, you haven't answered anything. You've merely wasted time and distracted yourself. And in much wisdom, he says, is much grief, verse 18. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Whilst it's fruitless to pretend that problems don't exist, it is at least stress-free. And there are some days, I suppose, when you just just have to go out and sniff the roses because it's all too hard. And Solomon explains that. He says, well, it's vanity to pretend that there's no problem And madness and folly really aren't a solution, but oh, when you start to consider the magnitude of this problem, it only makes you upset. What should you do when you really can't solve this problem? You really can't gain fulfillment in anything, at least not by thinking about it. 
Well, the quest couldn't be solved by merely by thought. The problem was too large. The problem was too, too complex. Human beings are what they are. And all the calculations Solomon made really yielded nothing. There were no obvious answers to the fulfillment of mankind. But then, of course, he's only just begun. He's only began to, begun to think about how to solve the problem. Nothing sprung up, obviously. But he's got a long way to go, doesn't he? His intention, remember, is to seek and to search out. Deeply and widely, he's got to look at every aspect of life to see whether pleasure can be derived in a more fulfilling capacity than what might appear on the surface. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, Go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But, but behold, he said, this also is vanity. The RSV says it like this. Come now. I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself, Solomon. This is the doctrine of hedonism, really. Whatever is pleasant and free from pain is intrinsically good. Do, do, do whatever you do, as long as it makes you happy, it's intrinsically good. It's not what Solomon says. He says it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's pointless. It's not true. It doesn't answer anything. And it's not fulfilling in the least. But what about laughter? Verse 2. I said of laughter. It's mad, he says. And of mirth, or pleasure, as the word means. What doeth it? The laughter he, he speaks about here is a superficial laughter. Frivolity. Madness. It's foolish. It's, it's just stupid. Mad, by the way, here. The word mad is from a root which means to boast. At the very best, it means to show off. At the very worst, it means delirium. It's the same word that was used of David in 1 Samuel 21 and verse 13 when he feigned himself mad. So madness is anything between showing, simply showing off and being absolutely delirious. That's what madness was. And he says of laughter, this is the prating laughter of fools. It's, it's, not that Solomon has a problem with laughter, by the way, because in chapter 3 and verse 4, he says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. But in chapter 7 and verse 6, he goes on in Ecclesiastes, and he says, as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. You see, there's laughter and there's laughter, isn't there? And the kind of reckless abandon so often shown in the world is absolute vanity, he says, there's no escape in that. It irritates me. It annoys me. He says, well, what about mirth? Pleasure. Now, this is different. This is legitimate pleasure. Harmless amusement. Good fun. This is acceptable, he says. But what doeth it? What's the point of it? It might not irritate you, but where does it get you? Just to participate in pleasure. Proverbs 14 and verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Laughter, you see, is a very poor cover for tragedy. Solomon's upset at the end of chapter 1 and verse 18, and laughter, even wholesome laughter, legitimate play, it's a very poor cover for tragedy. How often, brothers and sisters, how often would it be that the person who is the life of the party is the most unhappy person of all. It's a veil, but it's really a very poor cover, isn't it? 
So Solomon dismisses it. It's either madness or profitless. Or what about wine? Verse 3. And he's forced to consider wine, of course, because as he says, this is something that the sons of men do under the heaven all the days of their life. There is a generation or a portion of every generation, I suppose, which devotes themselves to solving problems with wine. Why do they do it, he says? Perhaps there's some hidden good there. Perhaps there's something I don't know about wine. And he pursues this experiment for some time, it appears. Till I might see, he says, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their lives. Till I might see, it was going to take time. He was going to have to repeat this over and over, and wait for something to emerge. Now, when we talk wine here, when we speak about giving ourselves to wine, as Solomon is here, we're not referring just to drink, just to the drinking of wine, but to everything wine means, the culture of wine, wining and dining, and everything associated with wine. So it wasn't just outright drunkenness that Solomon's speaking about. It's the whole culture of wine. Because there is a culture that spends all its time eating and drinking and being merry, isn't there? It's in our age, it's in many, in fact, I suppose in many parts of the Brotherhood also, sadly. It is possible to do that all the days of your life. It's extensive, I suppose, but it is definitely possible to do. And as our society becomes more affluent, it is more common. And in the more affluent echelons of Jewish society, those in which Solomon must have mixed, there would certainly have been an element devoted to living that lifestyle. Many times in the Proverbs, actually, Solomon speaks about wine, possibly based upon the results of this experiment. Proverbs 20 and verse 1, he says, wine is a mocker. In Proverbs 21 and verse 17, he says, he that loves wine shall never be rich. Proverbs 23 and verse 29, he says, who has woe but they that tarry long at the wine? But perhaps the best reference is just one page back in chapter 31 and verse 4. Here's a proverbial reference on wine. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of the afflicted. It's not for kings, you see. And this was Solomon's policy. He kept his heart, didn't he? I, lay, I acquainted my heart with wisdom. I did not get drunk. I, I, I went, I observed, I participated, but I watched. I was doing an experiment, and I was doing it professionally. It's not for kings to drink wine. Lest they lose control of themselves. And Solomon never lost, it was his avowed attention, wasn't it? He never ever lost control of himself in this. Needless to say, of course, Wine also, in the words of chapter 1 and verse 17, the folly of wine was vexation of spirit. It was a chasing after the wind. It really, obviously, had no solutions at all. And now Solomon enters the next phase of his experiment. I suppose he began the simple things first. He thought about the problem in his own mind to try and rationalise a solution to it. He couldn't do that. 
So then he, cho- he chose the, the flighty things, the things that really costed very little for a king, that he could do very simply, cultures which already existed. He participated in those and found them also to be very fruitless and pointless. Well, now he's going to start spending money. Verse 4, chapter 2. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. Literally, when it says here that he builded houses, it literally means I built houses for myself. So what? So what is this? We've got a clue here, I believe, as to when the quest began, as to when Solomon, in his reign, actually began to do these things. You see, there's no mention in this verse of Solomon building the temple. The temple was a house, but it was the house of God, and it wasn't a house for himself. The houses for himself that he refers to here are his own house, of course, the palace, the house for Pharaoh's daughter, the house of the cedars of Lebanon, the house of the forest of Lebanon. These were the houses that Solomon built. He began to build the temple, the king's record tells us. First of Kings 6 and verse 1 tells us. He began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign, and it took seven years to build. In the eleventh year, he began to build all the other houses which he had in the city of Jerusalem. So this quest, then, I would suggest, probably began sometime about the eleventh year of his reign. Solomon ruled for 40 years. He began his reign at about the age of 20. So he's 31-odd years old when he begins the great building-planting quest as we see it through here. And, you know, you've really got to see this to believe it. This is Solomon's Jerusalem. This is taken from the Companion Bible. And this is how he suggests Jerusalem looked in the days of Solomon. As you make your way up here from the city of David, from Zion, from, from the, the old city, you enter the porch for the throne, or the hall of the throne, as, it, as the king's record describes. And you'll read all of this in First of Kings 7 and onwards. The whole floor covered in cedar. The throne made of ivory and overlaid with gold. Six steps up to the throne. Twelve lions, one, one each side, two on each step. Golden lions. It tells us, by the way, in the king's record, there was not the like made in any kingdom. An exquisitely ornate throne room that Solomon had there. Then onto the, the porch of the pillars, or the hall of pillars, which appears to have been a waiting room or an anteroom, just before here, the house of the forest of Lebanon. So called, of course, because of the 45 pillars in three rows of 15, like colonnades that lined the inside of that house holding up the roof. 50 metres by 25 metres it was. Cedar beams, cedar pillars, cedar beams in the roof, all dragged down over land and floated down on the sea from Hiram, king of Tyre. A strip of windows, much like this, I suppose, right around the top sides of that, of that building so that the sun could shine in from all directions. And around the walls, 300 gold shields. And so that as you entered the, entered the porch here and then entered the house of the forest of Lebanon, you'd be met with a blaze of glory as the sun shone in each of the side windows and bounced off the shields and back and forth across this room. A magnificent spectacle that Solomon had created here in the house of the forest of Lebanon. To one side, the house for Pharaoh's daughter. To the other side, not shown here, but in the, in the royal enclosure, a house for Solomon himself, 
And of course, amidst all that, beautiful gardens, ornate gardens, picturesque gardens, and garden parks that Solomon had for his own pleasure, quite apart from what he might have made for public pleasure. And verse 5 goes on and tells us that he made gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. And you read the Song of Solomon, brothers and sisters, and you read about the vineyards that Solomon had. In chapter 6 and verse 11 of Songs, he talks about the garden of nuts and the valley where the vines flourished and the pomegranates grew. In chapter 8 and verse 11 of Songs, it says that Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman and he let it out to keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof brought a thousand pieces of silver. But it wasn't just the case of owning gardens, you see, because Solomon studied these gardens. When he wasn't building things, he was thinking about the lessons of life that he learned from the gardens. And so, of course, in 1 Kings 4 and verse 33, it tells us that he spake of trees, from the cedar tree in Lebanon to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He wrote proverbs about every different aspect of the garden. Orchards he made. Orchards. It's the Hebrew paradisos. Parks. Decorative gardens. He's creating his own paradise, you see. Everywhere you look, Solomon is, is decorating all of the landscape about him by building or by planting in magnificent style, as, of course, only a king can do. Verse 6, he says, I made pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. Now, that's important. You see, the wood here in verse 6 doesn't bring forth fruit. It brings forth trees. This is not part of the garden. This is a forest. He's grown, he's grown a forest from which he can harvest lumber. Because 1 Kings 9 and verse 26 tells us that in addition to all of the building he's done around the capital, he's gone and built a navy of ships down at Ezean Geber. Harvested the wood from the forest to build the ships, it appears. And then verse 7. Servants, maidens, servants born in my house. I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all me that were in Jerusalem before me. Two classes of servants mentioned. Servants who were purchased slaves and servants who were born in his house. Men and women who would be particularly loyal to the king, being born in his, uh, people over whom he had the control of life and death. He owned them from their conception. And a multitude of cattle, as he describes it here. Cattle, of course, doing duty for livestock of whatever variety. And these were crucial. These livestock were crucial because 1 Kings 4 and verse 22 tells us that for one day, for one day, Solomon's provision was 6,500 litres of fine flour, 13,000 litres of meal, 30 cows, 100 sheep, plus deer and fowl. That was to support the state every day. He had to have a multitude of cattle of all kinds to supply the table. And verse 8 says, I gathered also silver and gold, the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. The peculiar treasure, he says, the peculiar treasure of kings. You know what that is? These curious gifts of art that ambassadors give to each other. Craftwork from distant countries. 
every ambassador bringing some novel thing from his culture. From, and Solomon's collecting hundreds of these things, hanging them, I suppose, in museums all around Jerusalem. What use are they? But he, they're his, they're his possessions. He's collecting one thing after another as people come to see him, to ask him of his wisdom. Verse 9, he goes on, I was great. I increased more than all they that were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom, however, he says, remained with me. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. And we're going to stop there. You know why we're going to stop there? Because that's where God stopped him. Solomon has got to such an extent he can hardly count the money now that's rolling into the coffers of the state. He's got building activity going on all over the country. In addition to what we've got here, he's commissioning an army. He's building stables at Megiddo. He's he's fortifying the fortress cities all around the perimeter of his empire. And God says, Solomon, I need to talk to you. You've got to stop. Come with me. Now, you just remember that little phrase in verse 10 of chapter 2. Whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. And you come with me to 1st of Kings chapter 9. Look at this. First of Kings chapter 9, verse 1. Whatsoever my eyes desired, he says, I kept not from them. And God says, Solomon, Solomon, it's time to stop. I need to talk to you, Solomon. And look what it says. First of Kings 9, verse 1. It came to pass, when Solomon had finished the building of the house of Yahweh, that's in year 11, remember, it took seven years to build, starting at year 4. And the king's house... That's up to year 24, because it took another 13 years to build his house and all the associated palaces, and all Solomon's desire, which he pleased to do, that Yahweh appears to him the second time. He's now done all, he's got everything happening at an enormous rate of knots, all his desire, nothing has been withholden from him, and God appears to him the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. The first time, of course, was 1 Kings 3, when Solomon asked for wisdom. God appeared to him, and he asked for wisdom, and was commended greatly for that. And this time, God appears to him again, the second time. And Yahweh says to him, verse 3, Solomon, I've heard thy prayer, that is the prayer of First of Kings 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple. Many years earlier, it appears in this, I've heard thy prayer and thy supplication which thou hast made before me. I've hallowed this house, the temple, which thou hast built, and to put me there forever, put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And he says, Solomon, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised your father David. But, he says in verse 6, if you shall turn from following me, or ye or your children, 
and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you. And if you go and worship other gods, Solomon, then I will cut off Israel from out of the land which I've given them, and this house will become a byword. Solomon, we've got to put a stick in the sand, and you just have to know that I've heard your prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. I've accepted the house that you've built me, Solomon. I inhabit it. I'm going to put my name here forever. But I can see the desire of your eyes, and you are pursuing everything. Oh, it might be a laudable quest, Solomon. But you just have to understand that if you continue and follow my commandments as your father did, I will bless you. Nothing will be withholden from you. But if you don't, Solomon, if you, for example, serve false gods, Solomon, then I'll destroy you. Now, why would God say that? It's very serious, you know. You come across to chapter 11 and verse 9. This was a serious issue for Solomon. He didn't realize, I don't believe at this time, how serious God was. Look, after Solomon's heart was turned away in 1 Kings 11 and verse 9, it says that Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from Yahweh, God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. Solomon, you're on notice. You're on notice. You see, Solomon's getting himself into very deep water. You come back to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9. Things are beginning to run away, brothers and sisters. The wisest man in the world is beginning to lose control of where this might go. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9. I was great... And increased more than all those before me at Jerusalem. But my wisdom remained with me. I'm in control of my experiment. You see, I'm wealthy. I'm fabulously wealthy. I'm obscenely wealthy. But I'm in control. Look what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say he wasn't in control, by the way. The king made silver to be in Jerusalem. As stones and cedars... The king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Nothing was made of silver. It was not a thing accounted for in the days of Solomon. You just didn't use silver. It was like using aluminium. It just didn't really look like gold looked. So King Solomon excelled, exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And the weight of God that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And the Bible leaves it at that. It says nothing more than that. But this was the measure of the wealth that he was accumulating year upon year upon year. But he's in control. He was in control. There was one problem. You want to see the other problem? You come back to verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the problem is with the last part of this verse where it says, musical instruments and that of all sorts. You want to read some other translations? Here's the New American Standard Bible. I provided for myself 
male and female singers, and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Young's literal. I prepared for me men singers and women singers, and the luxuries of the sons of men are wife and wives. He'd built a harem. He built a harem. Whatsoever my eyes desired, verse 10 says, I kept not from them, including the luxuries of the sons of men. And it was those women, of course, that stole Solomon's heart, not from his wife, but from his God, and led him into the worship of false gods. And that's when God appeared to Solomon and said, Solomon, you must understand, money's one thing, but the women are another. They're not in the truth, Solomon. You're stacking them together, Solomon. Hundreds upon, you know how many he had? He had a thousand of them. Nothing his eyes desired was withholding from him, you see. And as wise and knowledgeable as he was, brothers and sisters, he still had human nature. As Nehemiah said many hundreds of years later in chapter 13 and verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him. Nevertheless, even him, even him, says Nehemiah, did outlandish women cause to sin. And God appeared to him and put him on notice way back in 1 Kings chapter 9. But for the moment, Solomon does retain his composure. At this point in chapter 2, nothing has gone wrong. He's enjoyed these activities while he does them, he says. But when they're finished, as verse 10 says, he was really left with no lasting benefit. They were enjoyable. Building and play. It was an enjoyable thing to do, but had no lasting benefit. Verse 11. Then I looked, he says, I looked upon all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I'd laboured to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Whatever pleasure I had when I did them, he says, it doesn't exist anymore. As one commentator put it rather crudely on this verse, this statement is the morning after the night before. Solomon's not trying to justify himself at all. He's brutally honest. There is great enjoyment in being busy. But with the achievement, once the object is achieved, then the pleasure begins to fade. You see, the novelty wears off. And in verse 11, we're right back to where we started from in chapter 1, verse 3, when Solomon asks the formative question of the quest, what profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun, and Solomon has labored and labored and labored and built the capital like no king before him. Nobody can copy me, he says. I've used more money than you're ever going to see, and I've got nothing left. There's no lasting satisfaction. We've gone full circle. We have not achieved anything since we began chapter 1, yet we've expended energy like you wouldn't believe. No profit under the sun. You want to know the tragedy of these verses, brothers and sisters? You, you want to know the real tragedy of these verses? Look at this. First of Samuel, chapter 8. <clears throat> they came to Samuel, they wanted a king. 
And Samuel said, listen, you remember the discussion that Samuel had with the people then with his God in prayer? And he was upset because, of course, the people had rejected Samuel's sons. And Samuel took it personally, didn't he? And he made it a matter of prayer with his God. And says, and God says, listen, Samuel, don't worry about it. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, that I should reign over them. Go and tell him this. And so Samuel said to the, in the ears of the people, well, he says, you want a king? This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for himself for his chariots and to be horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he'll appoint them captains over thousands and captains over fifties and he'll set them to ear his ground and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he'll take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and bakers. And he'll take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men, your children, and your asses, and he'll put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye have chosen. What's the point? This is the question. How many hundreds of thousands of people worked their fingers to the bone for that story we've just read? How many hundreds of thousands of people died to give the story that we have just read? How many families went without while Solomon poured gold down the drain, brothers and sisters, in this generation so that he could pursue this quest and write a dozen verses for us about the fact that labour has no ultimate profit? Forty years. Forty years he ruled, crippling taxation, economic hardship, great personal sacrifice for that country, so that one man could fulfil his dream. And Samuel said to them, listen, you can have the king, but, but you'll cry out because of that king. And they did, didn't they? As soon as Solomon died, they took Rehoboam to Shechem, the place of the burden bearer of all things, and they went to him and begged him to relieve the burden that his father had put upon them. A generation died, you see, knowing nothing but labour to fulfil those verses, so that those verses could be written for all time. There's the tragedy of those verses. Well, having solved the practical experiences, Solomon now turns back to wisdom and folly. He says, look, I've achieved nothing. We really haven't moved anywhere beyond chapter 1 and verse 3. Well, perhaps I've learned a lesson. Perhaps all this money, perhaps all this time has been for some profit. Verse 12, I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do that cometh after the king, even that which has been already done? And then I saw that wisdom excelled folly as far as light excels darkness. That the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happens to them all. I am the king, he says. I have more ability. I have more opportunity. I have gained more experience than anyone that will follow me. In a worldly sense, I've collected enormous wisdom. So what? 
Well, he says worldly wisdom does have some value. It's certainly better than folly, because at least if you're wise, you can extract some good that there might be along the way. You may be able to improve your lot. So that in practical life, wisdom is indispensable. But in the long run, Solomon says, what's the profit of it? Even, even wisdom, what is the profit even of being wise? Because whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, you, you, you die. Oh yes, if you're wise, you might prolong your life. What? Ten years? Ten years? Ten years so long. In the ultimate scheme of things, worldly wisdom is of value, but only of limited value. And it certainly can't bring lasting satisfaction. It certainly really hasn't helped to solve the quest, has it? Even wisdom, of all things, certainly hasn't really helped to solve the quest. In fact, he says in verse 15, I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it happens even to me. Why was I then more wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. As we found in chapter 1 and verse 18, for a man without God, wisdom will probably bring you grief anyway. Because you, you just find out that the problem's even bigger than you first thought. And the more you investigate it, the bigger it gets. So in the world, it's a judgment call, really, on how wise you ever want to become on anything because of the grief that will ultimately bring you. And what's more, verse 16, there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall be forgotten. How dies the wise man? As the fool. Of course, this is talking about the natural man without the truth. The world very quickly forgets its heroes, doesn't it? Very, very quickly forgets its heroes. But not so in the truth. Psalm 112 verse 6 says, But the righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Psalm 116 verse 15, Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. So the righteous are never forgotten. But there is one thing that God does forget. And in Proverbs 10 and verse 7 he says, That the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. They won't be remembered. Well, verse 17, he goes on. He says, look, because of this, because of all of this, he says, I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. It is all vanity and vexation of spirit. I've conducted one experiment after another, says Solomon. I've reasoned, I've laughed, I've enjoyed, I've tasted, I've built, I've made, I've planted, I've accumulated, I've collected things. I've done it more than anyone's ever done it before me or is likely to do it after me. And to that, I added experience. I added my knowledge, my insight, my foresight, my hindsight. I saw this problem from every dimension. And where has it got me? I haven't achieved lasting satisfaction in anything I put my hand to. And I've put my hand to almost everything. What am I alive for? Because I will die like the wise man and like the fool. And worse than that, worse than that, verse 18. I hated all my labour, he said, which I've taken under the sun. Because, what's more, I should leave it unto the man that will follow after me. And who knows? I think he did, by the way. Who knows 
whether he shall be a wise man or a fool. Yet he shall have rule over all my labour, wherein I've laboured, and wherein I've showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. You see, even though he could not find lasting satisfaction in everything he'd done, there was, there was the possibility, there was the possibility that, that, that his labours could benefit somebody else. And if that man that succeeded him was wise, then perhaps that effort would be put to good use. Perhaps there was some benefit in him having worked so hard. But really everything depends. Everything depends upon the man that succeeds him. Psalm 39 and verse 6. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up treasures and knoweth not who shall gather them? You can't take it with you, can you? And so he says in verse 20, Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labour which I took under the sun. Here's a paraphrase from one commentator. I gave up as desperate all hope of solid fruit from my labour. Verse 21, For there is a man whose labour is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, Yet to a man that has not laboured therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil, he says. This is what the NIV says on verse 21. For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This is meaningless and a great misfortune. And isn't it true? And so verse 22. For what hath a man of all his labour, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath laboured under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. And that's it, you see. He's worried. He's an old man, as he writes this, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's worried. He can't sleep at night because... He's worked so hard and he's worked diligently with wisdom and with care and with knowledge and with skill. And he knows, brothers and sisters, that he's going to bequeath his empire to a fool. Because that's exactly what Rehoboam was. And his father must have known that. Solomon dies at 60 years old. The record tells us in Kings that when, that when Rehoboam began to reign, he was 41 years old. So by the time Solomon is writing these words... The character of Rehoboam is extremely well known. Solomon knew exactly the kind of son that Rehoboam was. And what's more, he makes a comment on this subject in chapter 4, which is so pertinent you could hardly believe that Solomon did not see his future unwinding. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 13. Look what he says here. He can't sleep at night. Why? Because look, he says, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 13, Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. And he was admonished, wasn't he? Because God appeared to him twice and admonished him, particularly the second time. This old and foolish king. For out of prison he cometh, that is the poor man in verse 13. Out of prison he cometh to reign, 
Whereas also he that is born in his kingdom shall become poor, or, or as it ought to be, out of prison he comes to reign, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I considered all the living, he says, which walk under the sun, with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. Ah, so there's another child now, a child that shall stand up after the king. There's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. There's no end of the people that that child, the king's son, shall reign over. Uh, they also that come after him, however, shall not rejoice in him. Now, I suppose when Simon wrote these words, brothers and sisters, he was talking about Saul, who's followed by a poor man called David, who had a son called Absalom or Adonijah, who, who, who ruled over many people, but whom no one rejoiced in for a time. But didn't it have a remarkable outworking in his own life? Because there was a child called Jeroboam who was a poor child, the son of a widow woman, you see, but very wise. Solomon, in fact, observed his wisdom, his maturity, made him ruler over all the slaves of the house of Joseph as they were building the wall of Millo, the retaining wall of Millo. But Solomon didn't like him. A prophet appeared to Jeroboam, as you know, and told him that he was going to be the next king. Solomon found out, tried to kill him, he flees to Egypt, but returns to Egypt and comes to reign as the words of the prophet had said, though he was born poor in his kingdom. And there was a king, an old, foolish king, who did not heed the admonition he was given, who was followed by his son, who ruled over all the living, who did not rejoice in him. And the words played out in exact fulfillment. And it's difficult, I say, to believe that these weren't the sorts of thoughts that occupied Solomon on his bed at night as sleep broke from him as he thought about what was going to happen to all the wealth, for all the dynasty, the empire, which he had so, so patiently and wisely collected under him. It's difficult to believe he couldn't see all that happening, isn't it? But he refused the admonition. He refused the admonition that God gave to him. And even when Yahweh appeared to him the second time, he, did, he didn't see the seriousness of those words, did he? And look at the result. Look at the result of refusing that admonition. He made his own son the product of the quest. Because this verse here, 1 Kings 14 and verse 21, introduces Rehoboam to us. The son of Solomon, it says, he reigned in Judah. He was 41 years old and began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, in the city which Yahweh chose out of all the tribes of Israel. And his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitis. And when Rehoboam died across the other side of the same page of your Bibles, it says that he slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitis. And look what Solomon did for that woman in chapter 11 of First of Kings. He built Moloch, the abomination for the children of Ammon. And the very years that he should have been spending with his son, teaching him the principles of the truth, teaching him how to read the book of Proverbs that he is writing, the song of Solomon that he is writing, taking him around the garden and observing the lessons for life. He is out there with that boy's mother, worshipping false gods, in the garden park. In every sense, you see, 
Rehoboam became a direct product of the quest. And so if it was a tragedy, brothers and sisters, that a generation worked their fingers to the bone to pay for it, indirectly the kingdom was divided as a result of it. Because that boy was a casualty of his father's quest. Every bit a casualty of his father's quest. The luxuries of the sons of men are wife and wives. And the admonition came as he began to build up that harem. Just what did it cost to conduct the quest? Well, look at the conclusion. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. After having surveyed all of this, brothers and sisters, Solomon says, well, he says, I can tell you now what I've found. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Enjoy the simple things of life, he says. Eating, drinking, with your family, and honest day's work. Enjoy your labors and your accomplishments. And so you should, he says, because it's a divine blessing. It's a God-given pleasure that you should do that. And this is a major theme now that's going to develop in the book of Ecclesiastes. The blessing of God for work. The blessing of God for honest labor. That is, that is a reward in this life under the sun to the natural man. That he enjoys what he puts his hand to when he does it. Verse 25, he says, For who can eat, or who else can hasten thereunto more than I? He says, listen, if I tell you this, I know what I'm talking about, he says. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he gives travail, to gather, to heap up, that the sinner may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit, he says. With the blessing now of the divine perspective, everything becomes clear to Solomon, doesn't it? Our object, brothers and sisters, is not to gather and to heap up now. That's what the sinners do. That'll be done for us by other people out there and presented to us in the last day when we stand there together as heirs of the world. What does he conclude? This is what he concludes. Written in the blood of a generation of Israelites, there is no lasting value to be gained by any labour in this life, irrespective of the degree to which that labour is taken. And the lesson is written so we don't experiment with that. So we don't try and prove that point for ourselves. Solomon thought he could control it if he'd realised the cost. If he'd realised the cost of this quest, brothers and sisters, I don't think he ever would have begun it. Secondly, man does, however, gain a temporary satisfaction from his accomplishments. This is a gift from God and is provided for man's enjoyment. That is a legitimate pleasure to be satisfied with your accomplishments, with your achievements. But see the satisfaction for what it is. It is a genuine blessing, but it is a limited blessing. It is not the end in itself. The world about us chases this feeling time after time after time, always on to something new, to try and, to try and fulfill something. And they do so many things at once that I suppose they do simulate a kind of fulfillment in their life. They're too busy, they're too busy to get worried about anything else. But it's only a limited blessing and designed as such. The best course 
is to be content with the simple elements of daily life, to enjoy the blessings of labour, but to look beyond this present life for lasting satisfaction. In this life, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit, to the natural man. But to the saints, the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. 